Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with Chris and Jeff from Early Birds Marketplace. This was such a great interview. They were both so very frank about the reality of the industry in terms of startups and how they're merging more into corporate capabilities. Jeff and Chris talk about their company Early Birds and what they're doing in the space and how they plan to change the conversation at the enterprise level about looking to tech startups to add serious uplift to an organization. If you're keen to learn more about Early Birds or how your startup can get involved, then please keep on listening. Okay, Chris, Jeff, welcome. How are you guys going today? Yeah, very good, very good. I'm really keen to dive on into what you guys do and a few of the issues that I'm sort of seeing in the market. I'd love you guys to give a little bit of clarity on that in terms of the startup space. So before we dive on into those questions specifically, we always like to start our podcast off talking about you and your journey. So can you guys both walk through... Uh, your journey, like where you started to what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely we can. Uh, Chris, would you like to go first? Yeah, and, um, thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you, Carissa, for for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, <clears throat> so I actually, um, my name is Chris Poria, so I started, uh, uh, I was born in India, and uh, after my uh, university, I started my own business, uh, in IT um, in 90s, uh, and then, of course, got interest in software um, and uh, then sold my business to get into software development as a programmer, uh, worked um, across a um, couple of countries, including Asia and then Europe, uh, then US, and came down to Australia um, and worked in different roles, uh, including uh, started my media business um, actually uh, in 2009-10 and um, after my media business uh, I've worked uh, with various organizations especially IT organizations including Global System Integrators and and a company called Oracle Uh, and that uh, was the time when um, actually I met uh, Jeff uh, I was based in Australia, but Jeff was based in, in London. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll ask Jeff to cover his side of uh, the journey. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chris. So my first career was in uh, federal government, uh, mm-hmm. I had a long career in federal government, working all over Australia and uh, in Canberra. And I had the opportunity to leave uh, 18 years ago, actually, and... Uh, joined the uh, private sector, which I uh, grasped, mm-hmm. and spent time working with uh, startups, tech startups uh, here in Australia, uh, then in the uh, UK. And that led me to work with organisations like uh, venture capital companies, uh, then other uh, large uh, multinational uh, tech companies like Oracle and uh, IBM. So, as Chris said, uh, I spent quite a bit of time working out of the UK in uh, roles across Europe, Middle East and uh, Africa. got to know Chris during my Oracle days. So I've had a, um, quite a bit of experience of working with customers in the uh, technology space. I came back to Australia about three years ago 
-hmm. We're going to uh, work with a uh, scale-up, and that's during that time that Chris and I got to uh, rekindle our relationship, and it's circumstances during that time that uh, led to us creating early birds. So you've got, just to touch on that a little bit more, Jeff, you've got quite uh, a long career working across, well, the government space, but also just looking at startups in general. Would yeah. you say that sort of sparked uh, the genesis for creating early birds, would you say, in terms of what you've seen, what do you think is missing in the market? Absolutely, and it's a uh, actual uh, event that occurred uh, that Chris experienced where he had a, uh, a very great opportunity for a, an Australian startup, and I was working for an Australian startup slash scale-up, and uh -huh. it's uh, those circumstances that uh, led us to create uh, early birds. And yes, I've had quite a bit of experience working with uh, startups and scale-ups here and overseas. Wow. Okay. No, I totally, I really do love what you guys do. Uh, and so for people listening, uh, I am aware of what these guys do. I've, I've introduced a fair few people to these guys and I really love in terms of their business model, what they're trying to do. And I really wanted to shed some light on that today on this episode. So can you guys just tell our listeners, like, what do you guys do day to day? Like, what does that look like? What types of projects do you get involved in? How do startups get involved? Okay. Maybe uh, Chris could explain uh, the background mm -hmm. of why we do this. And mm -hmm. then that'll lead to uh, uh, the day-to-day -day activities. So Chris, if you'd like to tell our story, uh, to set the scene, and then we'll go into... Uh, how we interact with those uh, various components of the market. Yeah, sure, and Jeff, thank you for that. And uh, so, Chris, when I was working, actually, after Oracle, I joined a, a large system integrator, and I was working with the, um, as Jeff said, working with a, a large state government agency on a, uh, on a transformation project here in Australia. And during that time, uh, uh, basically, Jeff was working for this uh, a, a, a startup, and um, as part of this project I was working for, there was a requirement uh, to create a new project for multi-cloud uh, environment, uh, um, and uh, the company uh, that Jeff was working for had a multi-cloud management solution that was fit for purpose. Uh, and following a lot of uh, positive meetings with our tech team, architects, and all others, it looks very positive. Uh, but then we couldn't get approval from our head office in US. Um, so eventually, uh, my company at that time decided to build a solution from scratch and leave the local uh, off-the-shelf product. Uh, um, and uh, in that case, we felt there was no winner the customer got a bespoke solution and the revenue and skills for this component went offshore and the local startup missed a great opportunity. Um, so what we did after this, uh, we got together um, as we thought something should be done about this. Uh, initially, we thought we would uh, provide a business development and sales as a service to potentially to six to eight local startups and scale-ups. Mm -hmm. uh, but the more we looked into this, we realized this approach uh, would not scale. And this problem uh, was uh, much larger and it was a global problem. Um, we then decided to build a platform um, to link innovator, uh, innovators, especially tech startups and scale-ups with early adopter uh, private and public sector organizations. 
Um, so innovators can uh, basically list their offering with a price, upload all the relevant collateral uh, videos, use you know all other use cases uh, for um, including can use our our own sales contract or or their their own sales contract if they have to. Uh, and similarly, early adopters can also list a challenge uh, and publish their requirement. Um, so we have spent a lot of time actually interacting with many incubators and accelerators here in Australia as well as globally. Um, and uh, we feel we are uh, very highly complementary to these and pick up uh, the excellent work they have already done with these innovators. Uh, and it is our job to help them navigate the value of debt uh, uh, to commercialization. Um, so our platform is designed actually to be self-service where matching occurs uh, based on the industry, uh, business function and the business outcome. Um, so we have got that insight uh, when we were doing a lot of research with, uh, with both sites, uh, early adopters as well as uh, innovators. Um, they can also communicate with each other uh, set up a sale or take take on a challenge uh, through the platform. Um, but on the other hand, while we were road testing this with our customers, uh, some early adopters um, advised us that they could not list their challenge due to commercial sensitivity, uh, sens sensitivities um, or a security concern. Uh, mm -hmm. So they also advised us that, you know, you know, it is found it difficult to engage with early adopters. So basically what we did is uh, to overcome the challenge of that commercial sensitivities or, or security concern, we created a third pillar uh, in the platform, a service component with subject matter expert, uh, independent consultants who work with um, early uh, adopters on their challenges. Uh, we also created a highly focused short cycle consulting program called Challenger. Uh, the Challenger program is designed to work with early adopters uh, to define on challenge and then search for relevant innovators that meet the business, uh, technical and commercial, as well as risk requirements for the customer. Um, and uh, the early adopter can evaluate um, uh, these innovators. Um, uh, then we can publish a roadmap um, on the way forward um, as uh, as we progress through the challenger program. Um, we also launched another program called um, a explorer program, uh, which mm -hmm. is more of innovation as a service, uh, where early adopters get access to our uh, subject matter experts and also our big data uh, pool of uh, over 1 million innovators. Uh, along with our uh, weekly webinars, uh, we got a disruptive uh, weekly webinars with our innovators uh, that we provide access to uh, to our customers as well as our subject matter experts. Um, and uh, uh, that's how we run those kind of two programs. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, in terms of day-to-day -day basis, of course, it depends uh, uh, because we got a CFO as well as we got two vice presidents who look after our uh, subject matter experts ecosystem and customer engagement. Uh, uh, right now, we got um, close to 100 SMEs uh, on board already. Uh, we have also signed up an exclusive agreement with Union of Arab Banks uh, to be their innovation platform across 20 uh, countries 
uh, and 360 banks and financial institutions uh, for digital transformation. Um, so while we, we intended to focus on Australia, um, the Union of Arab Banks digital program was um, an excellent opportunity for us. Uh, incidentally, they uh, had been looking for a platform like Early Birds for 18 months. Uh, most of um, what they evaluated were procurement platforms, not innovation platforms mm -hmm. that solved the business challenge. Uh, so that has given us uh, definitely uh, a, a very unique advantage to us. Uh, so at the moment, we focus on early adopters as well as uh, um, as we have a good handle of innovators because of our big data investment. Um, so when uh, uh, we apply the diffusion of innovation theory uh, to our challenge uh, with early adopters, the potential customers uh, is quickly narrowed down to approximately 2% of innovators and approximately 13% of early adopters. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we feel that this, this group is, is the real uh, influencer group uh, mm -hmm. for sales and business development that, that we need to, or even startups have to, have to uh, focus and place their efforts. Um, Especially when you meet an early adopter, you are already speaking to a converted. So, um, uh, as, as an uh, as an innovator, or um, I would say startup or scale up, uh, that is exactly where we focus. That we try to connect our innovators with these early adopters who are mm -hmm. already looking and actively happy to take some of those risks um, that uh, most probably some of the other. Uh, you know, 87% of the customers wouldn't take. I think that I think that's really comprehensive, very thorough. I think that one of the, so I kind of see you guys almost as like a matchmaker for like technology startups to an enterprise. Would you say that when you talked about early adopters, like 87% of people are like afraid of that. I mean, living in Australia, as a as we all would know, Australians listening to this podcast, Australia is a very reserved market. And I mean, I've worked in corporates before where they're not prepared to go, oh, well, we'll, we'll give these guys a go. Do you think that's sort of changing now because people are looking for this disruptive technology and innovation? Do you think that over time corporations will become a little bit more lenient with that? Or do you think it'll sort of stay the same for the foreseeable? I think there's a change afoot, mm -hmm. Carissa, because uh, we've been talking to engaging with uh, some fairly senior officials to understand mm -hmm. uh, the very landscape around uh, innovation and what the approach needs to be. And uh, the commentary that we're getting is that things need to change mm -hmm. because um, not only uh, prior to the pandemic, but particularly uh, in the post-pandemic uh, economic environment, mm -hmm. uh, we need to be supporting what they're calling sovereign capability and build our local capability. So there's a real desire by some quite senior people to uh, to change the way we think about uh, using local capabilities, mm -hmm. and particularly supporting innovation. So there's a, a few reasons why that uh, mm -hmm. is, is an issue is this procurement rules, particularly in government, mm -hmm. uh, which need uh, to be fine-tuned, but it's more probably about changing the culture mm -hmm. in some of the organisations. But you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of organisations uh, are quite risk-averse, and for good reason. 
Mm -hmm. And it's a, a big issue that startups and scale-ups need to address mm -hmm. uh, is the risk factor. That's why we use the term sometimes uh, scale-ups, because the, the risk appetite on the side of the early adopter can be fairly low for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But then again, there's, there's particularly uh, scope and room uh, for taking risk uh, mm -hmm. in an organisation to be able to, uh, even where failure is the result or an outcome. So uh, we facilitate that by uh, keeping uh, the price of entry into uh, the market below around $25,000 or below mm -hmm. so that organisations can trial and test things quickly. And the innovators uh, need to be uh, uh, across this uh, as well uh, because it's advantageous for them uh, to interact, obviously, with the early adopters. So I, I think there's some change afoot and... Uh, uh, a great area to uh, delve into. So one of the other things I'd like to also ask you, uh, Chris or Jeff, is, Chris, you mentioned before that uh, we're now going to be see seeing that shift, but because of that, would you say, is it a fair assumption to say, if I'm a big player in this market and I've had renewed contracts for 20 years, yeah. Is it fair to say that they should perhaps be, I wouldn't say threatened, but become a little bit on the back foot, that they may be losing work to these smaller players who are perhaps more nimble, adaptable, they've got more velocity? Do you think that that's a point of contention for these guys? Are they are they worried about that? Uh, well, you can publicly uh, Google that. You'll find some reports by some very uh, uh, well-known consulting companies saying that uh, changes afoot. It's already mm -hmm. here uh, against mm -hmm. the, uh, the usual large multinational organisations that respond to some of these uh, uh, big tenders and contracts. Mm. So they need to find some local capability. They need to be more innovative themselves. In fact, we're engaged with, uh, with a number of them uh, who, uh, who need to be able to tap into the innovation uh, market uh, much more uh, aggressively, I would use that word. Uh, mm -hmm. The problem that they have is uh, similar to uh, any early adopter is that the innovation market is incredibly fragmented. There's, there's literally thousands of over 10,000 incubators and accelerators around the world. There's probably 100 or so, or, or so I don't know the actual number of, of accelerators and incubators in Australia, but there's, there's quite a lot. Mm. Uh, but they're all very fragmented, and uh, that's one of the reasons we've caught created early birds is to help uh, be it a large systems integrator of business or even innovator mm. uh, understand where these innovations lie. So we know from our big data, and we didn't know this uh, mm. before we created our big data capability, we had no idea how many innovative tech companies there are in Australia that fit into that startup scale-up category. Mm. We know there's over 16,000. We couldn't have answered that question uh, six months ago because the data's are highly fragmented. Mm. So, so uh, uh, organisations need to know what's available locally and mm. to answer your question is that uh, larger companies uh, need to understand uh, where these innovators are as well and how they get access to them. <clears throat> so when you deal with these, lar these larger corporations, uh, is it kind of hard to sort of knock on these big player doors? Like how's that sort of been so far just out of curiosity? Okay. Well, I can... <laughs> Answer from experience working for <laughs> large uh, multinationals that they're very yeah. different to work with for obvious reasons. They've got hundreds or thousands of products uh, mm. and uh, they're usually uh, uh, 
acquire capabilities through mergers and acquisitions, and it's very difficult to OEM a, uh, uh, a startup uh, technology into a mature organisation. Uh, and that's why you find then uh, startups are going out, out on their own and mm. uh, creating their own uh, footprint or their own capabilities. Mm. So it can, be, it can be very, very difficult uh, from a, a tech company perspective, but from integration perspective, uh, the, you'll hear discussion uh, uh, around in terms of having local content uh, uh, as part of a, a safe a tender response, for example. Mm. The problem some of the integration companies have is they don't know where to find that local capability. Mm. Uh, they're left to their own networks and their own devices, uh, and uh, that's incredibly limiting. So, as I said earlier, that's why one of the reasons we've created um, uh, early birds is, for example, you know, what blockchain capabilities do we have in Australia? Uh, because we need to be uh, building this capability locally because they're a bit behind the curve in other parts of the world. But there's lots of examples like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if you guys are both well aware, you know that I'm a big advocate for technology startups in Australia in particular. But what do you think are some of your immediate concerns when you see with companies perhaps that are adverse to working with startups? Now, we sort of touched on that before, but I'd like you to perhaps go a little bit deeper on that so people who are listening to this that are startups can can sort of understand um, from that perspective what some of the challenges they may be up against. So, uh, Chris, definitely uh, risk is uh, especially always forefront of this discussion. Mm. Uh, and it covers multitude of concerns across um, the areas um, of business, technical and commercial requirements of uh, an early adopter. Um, initially, we need to know the risk appetite of the early adopter that um, the startups are talking to. Uh, if they uh, or the project is, is risk averse, mm. uh, they need to find an innovator who is possibly a mature innovator, for example, a scale-up, with references and a, a bit of track record. Uh, so this this way we can mitigate some of those potential risks. Um, if the project, um, on the other hand, is leading edge and the early doctor is prepared to take risk uh, with the failure being a result, uh, then we can go uh, for an early stage startup. Uh, this uh, can work favorably both ways as the innovator gets uh, gets to market test their solution and mm-hmm. uh, gets to know what is emerging in the disruptive tech market. Um, so there, there's um, a, quite a lot of research in this area with some excellent reports and papers being published. Um, uh, these are in, in imploring um, early adopters to embrace innovation, innovators who are um, appending the tech sector with disruptive solution. Um, this means looking at new ways to procure innovative technologies uh, and ups- uh, upskilling the workforce to create digital culture. Um, so innovation, we feel, is everyone's business. It, it cuts uh, across uh, an organization. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that innovation means that we are just going to talk to the IT team. Um, uh, most and, and all other areas of organization are impacted by disruptive technologies. Um, so uh, we feel that uh, you know, depending on the customer appetite and depending on the the risk uh, they can take, um, um, I think uh, you know definitely there are concerns. But on the other hand, depending on on uh, on their level of risk and and appetite, uh, 
to test something uh, depending on on the project life cycle. Uh, I think there are uh, concerns, but there are opportunities as well in the market. Okay, and look, one of the things I'm really keen to get your thoughts on is startups may have the best solution potentially in comparison to an enterprise. But as we've been speaking about today, they don't have five years worth of financial records. They haven't been around the same length of time as some of these other big guys have been to prove their worth and to de-risk themselves from an organization, which of course is incumbent for a procurement process. And as Jeff touched upon earlier, especially when dealing with government, what are some of your your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a real big issue. And uh, this is part of the conversation we've been having uh, with some senior decision makers mm-hmm. uh, is that how how do we nurture and help or mentor those innovators who don't have those uh, references, uh, but it's a great idea uh, uh, or a capability that's uh, needed, particularly needed uh, likely to build the skills and experience here, is that <clears throat> we see some organisations will have an innovation area or a, mm. a fund, uh, for innovation uh, some of the larger government organisations, their innovation mentoring program will go on for two or three years. That's far too long uh, mm. for a startup. They just don't have the the, uh, the deep pockets and uh, to be able to get involved with those projects. So the, where we're at with the discussion is we uh, are looking at compressing this, um, talking to agencies, uh, both private and public sector organisations, to compress the time frame to allow uh, interaction with uh, these innovators uh, with a view uh, to taking uh, it further forward, either to evaluate uh, in detail or work on joint uh, ventures or joint projects, or with a view to helping uh, the uh, startup mature their products so it's uh, enterprise uh, ready and supporting those uh, local businesses. I think uh, it needs that type of approach, otherwise uh, we will continue to lag behind and uh, defer to the usual suspects and defer to overseas. So uh, uh, we need uh, that holistic approach to uh, supporting innovators across any organisation. When you say the phrase defer to the usual suspects, I'm really curious by A, what you mean by that, but my sort of assumption would be that, well, that's the way they've always done it, so they're just going to fall back on these guys because, again, their hands are tied by procurement and process and bureaucracy and ego. Is that sort of what you're saying when you say that? Absolutely. And uh, Mm. as I said, you can Google some of the uh, large reports that uh, I've, uh, I've mentioned and I talk about that, that as well, is that it's all too easy to refer to the, the, the usual suspects, but the usual suspects may not provide the innovation you, you need. Uh, they don't have the dexterity uh, of, uh, of an innovator uh, who's uh, come through an incubation program uh, or an accelerator and mm. has something that's really leading edge because that they're highly nimble, uh, they're incredibly agile, and uh, they'll come out with uh, contemporary solutions that some of the larger organisations don't have. Sure, the larger organisations, as I said earlier, will wait till it matures and then uh, acquire it. Uh, uh, But uh, there's a real need for all of us uh, to embrace these capabilities, particularly locally, if we're going to build uh, sovereign capability across the the key areas uh, that uh, that we need to be focusing on. I mentioned blockchain is one of them, IoT management, and all those sorts of things, the emerging cyber area. So some hotspots. Uh, in the market that we really need to be uh, to be assisting and growing locally. 
and some of this certainly come out in, in the budget. Uh, uh, and uh, there's a number of policy initiatives in place uh, to nurture innovation, but we've got to overcome uh, these procurement uh, issues. And ma mainly it's a culture and mindset uh, because it can be done, uh, but we just need to think about it more differently. So because these usual suspects, as we'll call them, are, are sort of winning the work, and I, and I say this politely without kind of really innovating some of them, don't you think that that's kind of doing an organisation a bit of a disservice where it's like, okay, well, we've just gone for the usual suspect guys because they've been around for 20 years. It's hard to kick them out and get, you know, the new kids on the block. Isn't their role is to sort of secure things, to enhance like technology capability and all that type of stuff rather than just like sticking with the same old players and potentially getting the, the same result or even, even a worse result in this case? Well, that's the reason we started early birds. It's a, a real... A, a, a real thing that happened uh, to uh, to Chris and I, mm. and there were, no, there were no winners in that, uh, and we're not sure whether the customer has a, a working capability at the moment. So, mm. um, so uh, uh, <clears throat> there, uh, it, it's a real issue uh, uh, for for everyone. And we're not saying here that you throw the the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Mm. Uh, but uh, there has to be room for local innovation and local capabilities. Otherwise, we won't build that technology capability that we desperately need as a country to be competitive and stand on our own two feet and have those sovereign uh, capabilities that, that uh, uh, policymakers and decision makers are talking about locally. Uh, so, uh, yeah, things, things, things have to change and we have to make room for our own... Uh, our own innovators. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to grow. It's, uh, there's, there's, there's no revenue for it to mm. uh, access or no basis for it to access or you have to go overseas. As Chris said uh, earlier, is that we hadn't intended to take early birds overseas, but uh, we were approached uh, in July, I think it was, uh, asking if we would consider going overseas uh, ahead of uh, our plans. Uh, and uh, we've had to, and there's a few tech companies that certainly that, that happens to, but we still have to grow the local skills and capability. Would you say, as a rule of thumb, technology startups or innovation are overlooked considerably in terms of just because they haven't been around long enough, would you say, and people are very risk-adverse and, uh, you know, no one got fired for, for purchasing the usual suspects? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's true, and uh, risk is uh, is is an issue uh, that any early adopter organisation has to take into consideration. Mm -hmm. And Chris went went through that. But one of the key reasons they're overlooked is that no one knows what we have in Australia. Uh, uh, you would have to individually go to each accelerator uh, or incubator to find out what uh, capabilities are out there. Uh, and uh, that's why we've created this big data pool uh, based on the digital footprint of the innovators globally. We have 1.1 million almost uh, innovators in our, in our big data pool. And mm -hmm. uh, you need that visibility of what's available locally so you can uh, then narrow it down to say, okay, out of the 16 or thousand odd in Australia of innovators, uh, who, are they, who are addressing a particular issue uh, who are available in a particular state, uh, their local resources. And we can do that now. We couldn't do that before. And this is what's critically needed, is that uh, we don't know what we know. 
Mm. So it's upon what I'm, he- what I'm hearing is like a lack of awareness on a lot of these organisations, like what they do specifically. Well, exactly. So we, we're talking to lots of early adopter organisations and they just they don't know what's available beyond their own networks or their own contacts. So one of our SMEs, for example, uh, SME Consultants, uh, was a global head of innovation for two very large financial services organisations overseas and he- here in Australia. And we actually asked him, uh, how did he identify uh, innovators? Because he's uh, very much uh, startup, scale-up uh, driven to resolve business problems. And his response was, well, I physically had to go to conferences or particular events to try and identify accelerators in the financial services sector that I was working in. Sure, we've got uh, uh, various forums, but it's uh, a lot of uh, physical activity involved Mm. to identify them. And it's Mm. too hard if you're sitting in an office working in a a particular area uh, to to know and understand uh, what's out there. So would you say more of a digital solution, perhaps maybe better uh, in terms of physically going around and obviously that takes a lot of time and, and energy up. Do you think that could potentially be a, a better solution? Well, absolutely. That's why we cre- mm. one of the reasons we created Early Birds because mm. we knew this was a, a global problem. Uh, and mm. uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, a- absolutely. So we can provide uh, that uh, advice. For example, if someone's preparing a... Uh, tender uh, response for a particular capability, mm. uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to uh, jump on early birds and have a look at well, what's out there locally uh, that could fit the bill here? Are, are there are there uh, vendors out there that have, have got a minimum viable product uh, that could fit this uh, solution or be part of a component of a, a broader solution? Mm. Uh, so we're talking to some large agencies uh, about this at the moment. They just don't have that. Uh, even some of the large facilitation uh, parts of, uh, of government around technology uh, don't have access to that broad data set. So what do you sort of believe are the biggest challenges that some of these technology startups face when they're trying to secure larger public and private sector contracts? Yeah, well, it's visibility uh, of who they are and the fact that they're out there, even if they're early stage, because... Uh, some organisations could be looking for uh, early stage uh, ideas uh, to uh, to put into an R&D program or they might be looking for something uh, uh, more mature. So it's uh, visibility uh, and it's impossible for a startup in one part of Australia to get visibility in another part of Australia unless you're involved in various uh, forums, etc. So visibility uh, is, is a, a key one. Uh, and the second one is that... Uh, 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 knowing what markets they need to tap into. So um, uh, we've also discovered that uh, where innovators think that they might uh, only have be tapping into a particular market, they, the solution may have utility in other markets. So we can help expand that as well uh, to understand where the technology could be applied in other markets. So it's visibility, <clears throat> tapping into the market, and the, particularly the innovators really understanding the personas of who they're selling to across an organisation, not just to a particular area of an organisation, across an organisation, because there's multiple decision makers and multiple stakeholders uh, who are going to be interested in uh, uh, the innovation, particularly if it's solving a particular uh, high-level challenge. 
And maybe I can add two more uh, mm -hmm. on this, Carissa. Mm. Uh, I believe that uh, from earlier doctor point of view, in this context, when we are talking on large public or private sector contracts, uh, you know, there is definitely the culture uh, issue um, in, in that specific business that they need to think about startups and they need to think about disruptive solutions and giving them that opportunity and aligning all of their processes um, in a way that, that encourages um, uh, these innovators to apply for those contracts. But on the top of that, there's another opportunity, what I would say kind of a collaboration uh, challenge between innovators, um, uh, because most of the time when you're working on large projects or contracts, uh, normally one innovator may not be able to solve the challenge. Uh, in that case, most probably there might be three, four, five of those innovators where they might need to come together to solve a business challenge. And this is why, you know, most of the time when it comes to big contracts, uh, big system integrators win because they bring everything together and then internally they manage all of that process of collaboration mm -hmm. with their different business functions within their organization. Um, so I think there, there is that big challenge with, uh, especially with the startups and scale-ups because normally startups and scale-ups are focused on solving one specific challenge um, out of, of a big contract maybe. Uh, so what they need to think about is how they can collaborate not only amongst other uh, innovators, but also with potentially some other system integrators uh, to add that value and bring it together. That's a really interesting point you raise. I mean, from my perspective, from what I'm seeing is that corporations now do want to deal with hyper-specialised organisations. And I think it's probably because back in the day, you'd probably go to a one-stop shop that would do everything. And admittedly, there is still a place for those guys. But I think companies now are moving away from, well, this company can only do the whole thing at 80% versus going to seven different operators that are 100% uh, subject matter experts in their particular stream or their area, right? So I'm sort of seeing now this people focusing on and, and like sniper rifling, sniper rifling these independent firms to say, hey, you're best in breed at doing that one thing, but we're happy to sort of engage you because you're really good at doing that versus, oh, you're 50% at doing that. So that's sort of the shift that I'm now seeing. Would you sort of say that that's going to become more of a thing now? Because, I mean, IT cybersecurity is is very broad, so to, to know everything across everything is massive, and I think that there are uh, inefficiencies with large system integrators, perhaps because they are so large, and not every single player can be best at everything, and that's just, I think it's just a rule of thumb, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, uh, I think you can overlay over that statement uh, the move to technology as a service is that uh, moving the cloud and technology as a service. It's not only changed the delivery and engagement method methods, but also uh, uh, the buyer uh, moving from uh, capex uh, to opex. So you've got different mm. buyers and stakeholders uh, in, in the room, and there's a lot more uh, choice. Uh, so uh, the uh, customer dynamics are, are, are quite different, and uh, yeah, the, the larger one-stop shops uh, are. Uh, uh, need to uh, compete in a different environment. And this is what some of the reports I'm referring to mm -hmm. are talking about, uh, saying that there's a 
hell of a lot more innovation out there in startup scale-up world uh, than you may find uh, in a large systems integrator. It's not, not to mean you wouldn't work with the systems integrator. It means that the systems integrator may be working with startups and scale-ups as uh, part of the uh, solution moving forward because of a requirement. Uh, that, it's, that fits the build. You can't be uh, one size fits all for everyone mm. because there's too many uh, variables in, in the market. That's why one of the reasons that we've created uh, the SME consultants where we provide innovation as a service, is what mm. we call it, is that there's too many different skills to build into your innovation team. Mm. So uh, uh, if you're going to stand up an innovation team, well, what type of specialist do you bring in? Uh, and uh, uh, it can become incredibly expensive unless you've got very deep pockets. So mm. where do you go to to get that advice? So that's why we pivoted uh, and introduced the services uh, capability to help organisations uh, to tap into those skills and capabilities. And this is similar to the problem that you've just outlined, is that, is that uh, the dynamics have changed and I think it will continue to change and we may see some government policy uh, introduced to, to help it change to build our local capabilities. So what do you honestly think in terms of, what do you think the landscape will look like for these big players like moving forward? So I think sort of the cat's out of the bag, so to speak, that people are yeah. moving away from that type of model. They are going with startup scale-ups, innovation, and I think that's probably more prominent overseas because Australia is a very risk-adverse uh, country, which I can understand, but I think that's changing as we've clearly articulated and identified on this interview. But I'm really curious to understand, like, what do you think's on the horizon for these guys? Are they going to have to just start acquiring left, right and centre? Do you think that they're going to have to scale back their services? I'm just really, because these guys have been operating like this for like 30 plus years and now they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, my back's against the wall. I've got to do something different. And I've, I'm now in really uncharted territory. I think uh, I'll initially uh, answer that. I think uh, first step is uh, to understand how they would work uh, with uh, innovative startups and scale-ups uh, as part of the norm of moving forward uh, and understand uh, uh, who they uh, should be working uh, with to provide that uh, local content. Uh, that's getting a better understanding of the local market and engaging. Uh, with the local uh, innovators <clears throat> and working with them and having a dedicated program uh, to do that uh, moving moving forward because it's a benefit to them as well because that could, they could win more work uh, working with uh, uh, local capabilities, particularly uh, uh, if they're showing that uh, they're building local skills and uh, local knowledge in the context of, uh, of what's needed moving forward. So that's uh, one of my, my thoughts. Chris, what do you think? No, definitely, I to totally agree. Uh, and I'm just going back to Chris's point uh, in terms of specialization, for example, uh, there is a lot of focus on specialization. Mm. And uh, given that a lot of system integrators, in a way, they, get, they have specialized units within their businesses. Uh, and what they try to do is they try to bring, you know, mostly their internal solutions, but also some external solution to build uh, those capabilities, those specialized capabilities. Uh, so going forward, uh, my view is that they have to, and they are already actually, there are a lot of system integrators already either acquiring or partnering with the 
uh, with uh, uh, disruptive innovators, uh, both startups and scale-ups, to explore those opportunities, explore joint go-to-market uh, capabilities. Uh, so my view is that they have to keep focusing on, on those specialized skills and specialized areas because uh, with time, there will be more and more uh, specialized contracts and uh, uh, you know smaller contract than than having end-to-end -end, uh, uh, you know outsourcing contracts that they used to have in the past. Would you say that these the usual suspects uh, are perhaps apprehensive or reluctant to work alongside a startup? Now, my my reasoning is because perhaps they think that. While these guys have been here five seconds, they don't deserve this, or they feel threatened that they'll start taking over their work. I mean, strategically, Jeff, you're right. Like, if they were to work collaboratively with them, then it would make sense that they would potentially gain more work. But short-sightedly, perhaps people don't think like that. Well, I, you know, I think uh, uh, and. That's probably uh, true also for the things we talked about earlier around uh, early adopters uh, being risk averse or having a culture of, uh, of putting mm. procurement as a barrier uh, to allowing uh, interaction or working with, uh, with an innovator is that uh, it uh, can certainly uh, uh, be a disadvantage uh, to them. And I think... The conversations we've had with uh, 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 quite a few uh, uh, large systems integrators is that is that uh, they are willing to change, but they're not sure how to go about it because they've not had access uh, to to the pool of data. There's been no central pool. Mm. For example, if you want to find a, 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 an innovator, you've either got to go to an accelerator or, uh, or you may know someone who knows someone. Well, from a business context, that's not strong enough. Uh, you need to know, well, what is in the, that particular cohort uh, across Australia that I can access with and, and how do we curate and understand that, uh, uh, how they're going to work uh, commercially. So this uh, sort of what cuts both ways is that uh, also the, um, the innovators uh, need to be thinking more commercially how they would work with a large systems integrator because it mm. could come knocking on the door. It did for us with the Union of Arab Banks come knocking on the door and we quickly had to pivot and think about uh, how we would work with them and what we would do uh, moving forward, like 12 months ahead of where we wanted to be. So it sort of works both ways, uh, but there's education required on, on both sides. And I think that's the strength that we uh, bring into the equation is that we can provide the data uh, to uh, the organisations involved uh, as to who's out there and what they do. Uh, we can work with the innovators and accelerators who are keen to work with us. We have an ambassador on our team for accelerators uh, to engage with them because uh, they're keen to engage with industry. There's a, a few organisations that sort of engage with industry uh, at an accelerator level, but it's sort of one-on-one. -on -one. It's in Sydney, it's in Melbourne or whatever, and it's fragmented again. Mm. So... Um, uh, <clears throat> they need to think differently uh, about uh, the way they do it uh, and the way they interact with uh, one another. And uh, again, it's uh, removing uh, uh, that those cultural barriers and thinking about it in common sense commercial terms. 
In terms of procurement contracts and processes and policies, would you say that they're more likely moving forward to perhaps be a little bit more lenient? And what I mean by that statement is you don't have to be around 10 years to potentially get contract with us. Do you think that they're going to sort of uh, stipulate different terms in their contract because they are trying to build that bit of innovation in, in, from the executive level from what you've touched on today? Do you see that sort of changing face as well? Well, I think uh, uh, for a large contract, uh, you would expect that there'd be uh, references and mm. uh, and track record and those sorts of things, and plus uh, your commercial uh, requirements that need to be ticked. That if they can lower, lower the barrier uh, to entry uh, in the dollar value, as we said earlier, we our price point's twenty five thousand mm. dollars to get things uh, moving. Uh, Organisations can do that. Um, and uh, still work within the letter of the law and the policy to ensure that it's uh, everything's accountable and it's uh, fair and equitable. Organisations can do that mm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> then get to interact uh, with the uh, innovators, uh, understand what they do and help them uh, not only market test but build uh, a track record so that they can compete at a high level as they mature. So uh, there needs to be a sort of a like a maturity uh, mm. runway mm. Uh, into an organisation. As I said earlier, some of the big organisations have them, and it's a three-year program, uh, mm. and it's far too long. We haven't got three years. Uh, we need to move on this uh, as a country fairly quickly and uh, move forward. So as I said earlier, there's a few senior decision makers that are really keen to see this change, and they're looking for advice uh, from uh, their customers that they work with uh, and the, the end users who are going to be using these uh, capabilities. So what are three key takeaways you can provide to startups who are looking to secure larger contracts with bigger corporations? What are some advice you guys could, could give today on today's uh, interview? Okay. Three mm -hmm. each. Let's go with that. How about that? Three yeah. each. <laughs> And they can't be the same are the rules. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. I think uh, from my point of view, I would say that uh, the first thing is they need to know their customers. Uh, and when I'm saying um, customers mean they need to know because given that they are startups, uh, they need to know whether these customers are early adopters or innovators. Uh, in that category is because you know that once uh, these customers are early adopters, there is highly likely that they are going to buy from a disruptive innovative. Um, and uh, the second thing, and we have seen this very, very common even with the scale of companies, uh, that they do not have a why statement. They don't know why uh, about themselves, why they are doing what they are doing. Uh, and what problem are they solving and why they are solving that problem. Um, so it's very important to have that uh, 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 that why statement and also a very compelling why statement, uh, why they're doing this. Uh, and I think as Jeff said, uh, the third point is, uh, you know, be prepared to pivot because, uh, you know, big time, especially when you're working with big um, opportunities and big contract, uh, there might be an opportunity where those specific customers might, uh, and especially if you're in early stages, 
if they are asking something specific, uh, you might need to pivot and change your, you might even need to change your business model and the way you operate, uh, or you might need to change your solution roadmap. Um, and what normally uh, Jeff said, that don't become a victim of uh, founder deafness. Um, that means that, uh, you know, you are only hearing um, what you wanted to hear, not you are not listening uh, to the market. You are not listening to your customer, uh, customers, what problem they are seeing and how you are solving their problem. That is that is where you should be focusing on. Mm, love it. Okay. So yeah, yeah, Chris has pinched my notes. I was going to say <laughs> I'm going to be auditing you to make sure they're not the same. So <laughs> in fact. Uh, I prepared uh, some notes around what we thought the three uh, sort of key takeaways, and uh, Chris has touched on them. It's about knowing your buyer. Uh, what I might do is uh, go into uh, a little more detail around that, as it's it's knowing the personas that you're buying to, uh, and uh, because you're selling into a, a very different, diverse market, uh, you need to understand uh, those buyers. Just not in the in the CIO's office, uh, but other areas of business. Who in your business, in the business, is likely to be your buyer because they may hold uh, the purse strings because it's uh, opex that's being spent. It's not capex. So uh, understand the, the personas in particularly, and uh, develop uh, your uh, marketing and engagement uh, capabilities around those personas and address them because. Once you get into a uh, presentation, demo, interaction, uh, you're likely to have a diverse audience uh, in the room. <clears throat> uh, the innovative deafness uh, one is uh, uh, a, a classic. Uh, it's uh, been was raised with me uh, not so long ago. Um, uh, I was having a discussion with a, uh, an innovation board level advisor around pivoting. And uh, as a, uh, <clears throat> a startup or a scale-up, you've got to constantly uh, address the issue of pivoting and not be afraid uh, to, to pivot. Uh, we've had to uh, quite a number of times uh, in the 12 months that we've been actually live with our platform. But innovation deafness is a real thing. Innovators deafness is a real issue. This is where innovators are not listening to what their advisors are telling them. Uh, I've witnessed this overseas, I've witnessed uh, uh, this uh, locally, and it can result uh, in devastating, catastrophic uh, implications for a, a, a fledgling uh, innovation business. Uh, and that's why engaging with the uh, early adopters uh, early on as possible is uh, absolutely key to getting that market feedback, because if there's no appetite for what you've got, uh, you really have to think about uh, where you're going. Or if you're getting advice that you need to pivot, uh, really seriously sit down and think about that. I myself have learned a lot about the startup space, what we're moving to, uh, and what people should really be focusing on and looking, um, looking at moving forward. So if people perhaps have a question that I didn't ask you guys today, and I did ask you guys a lot, how can people go about uh, reaching out to you? Well, we're both uh, on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, we are uh, very uh, active and avid users of uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so messaging, 
quite often uh, contacting and communicating with people through uh, that uh, medium as well. Happy to engage and uh, continue the discussion because we hear you know, our wires about uh, uh, actionable innovation for society and um, uh, we're really keen to help them build uh, the local content based on uh, why we started Early Birds. Well, again, I really appreciate you both finally coming on the show to have that chat. And I think that what you guys are doing is awesome. And I believe a lot more people need to really be aware of how they can potentially get involved and understand a little bit more about what you guys do. So thanks very much once again for your time. Well, thank you very much, Grisha, for the opportunity. Yeah, it's been wonderful to have the discussion. Thank you for the questions. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.